This morning I'll be reading from Acts 15, 1 through 21. Certain people came down from Judea and Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled to Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must, must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed, the, or addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on their necks, of, or putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that, our, that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The word of the Lord. How can we come together in a world that is coming apart? That's a central question we want to ask and hopefully answer. I hope you'll carry it with you from today. I have some uh, data that's fresh from the end of 2022 that was collated from a bunch of surveys. Uh, it's not hopeful, so just prepare yourself. 70% of Americans believe the country's headed in the wrong direction. And we're so polarized that we cannot solve our most pressing issues. 88% believe this polarization could lead to an increase of violence. 71% think our democracy is at stake. 54% 
I think we're headed towards civil war. 76% of people said they're stressed over all this, <laughs> understandably so. There's a little chart that, that some group put out, and they looked at uh, conservatives, so people probably to, to the you know, farther right, and, and progressives, people to the farther left, and uh, just asked them questions. And here's the interesting thing. They had broad agreement on, on what they thought of one another, but it wasn't very nice. Uh, 88 and 89% back and forth thought the other side was brainwashed. Uh, 86 and 86% perfect symmetry, they agreed, thought the other side was hateful. 76% and 84% thought the other side was racist. Think about that. The two extremes both think the other side is racist, and 82 and 81% thought the other side was arrogant. What could go wrong? I thought, of, uh, I thought of some other things that are polarizing. Uh, Brussels sprouts, right? I mean, if you, like, it's like a hipster thing. You go downtown Portland, like, they're really tasty. And the other people are like, yeah, I don't do that. That's just gross. It's just the, you know, that. So that's one thing. Uh, Prince Harry is polarizing, yeah? Are you, are you with the royalty? Or are you with Prince Harry? It's just like vigorous debates. Uh, I think uh, peeps are polarizing, right? I, I personally love peeps. I can't wait for them to begin to stock the shelves. Any other peep lovers in here? I mean, what's wrong with sugar-covered marshmallow? I just don't get people who don't like it. But then how many people hate peeps? Like, oh, okay, see? It's a, it's a, it's a vicious debate. Uh, and then uh, most polarizing is, of course, Nicolas Cage. Um, no one knows what to do with that guy, right? Is he a brilliant actor? He won an Oscar. Is he a bad actor? Is he insane? I mean, who knows? Just, you know... Anyway, uh, there's so many things. I, we talked last week about how this, uh, we looked at celebrity uh, from our passage last week and how Paul and Barnabas like ripped their clothes and they're like, we want nothing to do with celebrity, all glory to God, and how, we, how celebrity has entrenched itself in the American church, which is devastating. This week, we we're looking at this issue of divisiveness and how the world seems to be coming apart. And we see the same thing, sadly, anecdotally, but we see them everywhere, that divisive nature has entered into the American church, whatever the issue may be, sexuality, gender, abortion, politics, mask, whatever it is, we just co-opt the divisive issue from the surrounding world and just allow it to enter our midst and fracture us and break us apart. And I, this is a strong word, but I stand by it I think this is demonic. I think it's demonic. And we can do better. And we need to do better missionally. And so our question this morning that we're framing is how do we come together in a world that's coming apart? We're in this study of Acts called On Mission. And we move, we're looking at kind of how the early church was planted and birthed and it grew, asking our question, how can we be a faithful church in 2022 in America? What can we learn to do? What can we learn not to do? Uh, we've switched kind of from, Paul, from Peter and the apostles and John and the coming of the Spirit and those initial things, and then Stephen gave his life, he was a martyr, and then now the camera has switched to the apostle Paul, who oversaw Stephen's martyr, and Jesus has intersected his path and transformed Paul, and now Paul is essentially taking the gospel, the good news of King Jesus, to the non-Jewish world, and Peter and the apostles are kind of focusing on the Jewish world. That's kind of where we're at in the book of Acts. And much of the rest of the book will focus on Paul and his traveling companions. Last week, we looked at Paul's first of three missionary journeys. Uh, and so Paul went to, from Antioch to Cyprus 
up to what is modern day Turkey to these little cities, Iconium and Lystra and Derby, and they shared the gospel, planted churches, people came to Christ, and then they returned to Antioch, and then they encounter more uh, division. If you remember from last week, the end of our passage, Paul's planted this church, and then he gets stoned. And then they think he's dead, and then he pops up like a cartoon character and just walks right back into town. So the acts, it's just crazy what's happening. And so you think you're done with divisiveness, but it just keeps marking and dogging Paul's steps. So this group of Jewish Christians shows up in Antioch. So Antioch is like the southern base for the ministry to the Gentile world. That's a good way to think about it. So they're kind of returning to home base, Paul and Barnabas, Paul freshly off his stoning, and Barnabas and the crew, and they're kind of resetting what they do next. Uh, And then this group shows up uh, that's kind of been following Paul. So here's what's going on. This will... I hope this doesn't bore some of you, but I think it's really important to have context for the passage that Stuart just read. American Christians do a bad job of context, so don't like like this on me. I think this is really important to understand where we are in the story and what's happening. So Paul wrote a bunch of letters. One of his letters was the letter to the Galatians. And we all agree, scholars agree, this is Paul's first and earliest letter. So here's what I think happened. I think uh, Paul planted these churches in Galatia, that's the area, that we were in last week, modern-day Turkey. He planted them, and then a group came behind Paul. And they said they were from uh, Judea, uh, which is around Jerusalem. They said they were from James, the leader of the church there. We'll get to that. And so Paul would plant the church, and then this group of Jewish Christians, they believed Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but they were still hanging on to some of the tentacles of Judaism. And some of the things that they required all Jewish people to do. And we refer to this group of people collectively as the Judaizers. So this group of Judaizers would wait till Paul exited and then kind of creep into town behind him. And come in and be like, we're from Jerusalem. We're the same. We're brothers and sisters. And yes, Jesus is Lord and the King. And But you also need to do fill in the blank. So Paul's gospel was Jesus and the work of Jesus and God's grace. The Judaizers' gospel was Jesus plus. And whenever we add a plus to Jesus, and we still do this today, we destroy the gospel. And so their plus, essentially, they had a couple different things, but their plus was that, yes, the gospel's true, Jesus is king, his work on the cross saves you, and you need to be circumcised. Now, what is circumcision? Uh, I have a couple slides that will show. I tested that joke on my, on my family. They're like, don't say that. Don't say that. I got to say that. I, I got to say that. They'll like it. But we had a laugh track ready if you didn't laugh. Um, <laughs> circumcision humor, you know, what are you, you going to do with it? So kids, what is circumcision? Ask your parents. I don't want to talk about it. So for a Jewish person, this was the covenant side for a male Jew of faithfulness. I cannot be hyperbolic enough to explain how important it was to Jewish people. It was your mark that you were a faithful Jew. So this was kind of the last thing this group was clinging to. It was so deep in them that they didn't see how you couldn't do it. So they wanted Jesus plus circumcision. And and this this continued on from being Jewish facial, Jewish people in a Gentile world. Gentile people did convert to Judaism. And when they did, they were required to be circumcised. So they were faithful in, in doing this. But can you imagine, I mean, seriously, all humor aside, 
you do walk into these towns and people are like, like enraptured with the grace of God, they're following Jesus, and here comes this other group saying, oh yeah, they forgot to tell you something, we need to circumcise you. You're just like, jeez, you know, a hot second. You know, I'll take baptism any time of the week over circumcision. So uh, that's what's happening. And so Paul hears this, and he writes, I think, he writes the letter to the Galatians, around AD 48. And it's Paul's most heated letter. He's really angry. You don't have to know much about the Bible to read the letter and see this guy's angry because Paul really feels like the gospel is at stake. So I wanna give you a, a, a taste of the letter to the Galatians. If you've never read it, we'll do a series on it sometimes. It's really a fabulous letter, but I wanna just give you a couple uh, snippets here. So Paul starts his letter saying, I'm astonished, and he's writing in these churches that he planted, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, Jesus plus, which is really no gospel at all. We add anything to the gospel, it destroys it. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. He's fiery. And then he goes on, uh, he, uh, he tells him, he, yeah, he plays like the Jesus card. He said, I didn't get this gospel from me. I didn't make this up. Jesus appeared to me and gave me the gospel. I call it the Jesus card. What are you gonna say to that? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus told me. And then he talks about this dispute with Peter. At some point, Peter and Paul knew each other. Peter went up and kind of joined Paul and Barnabas at these churches, and Peter is on board. Peter's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is good. The, the God, just Jesus alone. And then the Judaizers show up who knew Peter well, and he changes his tune like that. And Paul's like, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite, Peter. And he calls him out, and we'll get to that and how that plays into this council to come. So then, we, we, uh, then Paul begins to lay out his, his letter to this group of Gentiles. And here's a little bit more. He says, you who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Look how he keeps repeating the same thing. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So too uh, have put our faith in, G in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He goes on later in chapter five. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. And that's Jesus plus. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. And then he says this. He says, speaking right to the Judaizers in chapter five, look it up, this is what the Greek says. It says, I wish you Judaizers would just go ahead and cut yourselves off. What do you think he's saying? Exactly what do you think he's saying? Can you believe Paul uses such cutting language? See? <laughs> Circumcision dad joke. Uh, he's saying that. I mean, you think the Bible's boring? I mean, Paul's fired up. He's fired up. And then he says, at the end, he says, note that I'm writing this with my own hand. Uh, what this means is Paul was not scribal literate. Paul was literate, he was brilliant, but most people weren't scribal literate. That's what you and I are. We read and we write. Well, we don't write a lot anymore, do we? But we can write. And Paul would transcribe letters. Everybody would. So like 5% of the Roman Empire was scribal literate. Now, could Paul write? Yes, but it would have looked like a three-year-old writing, right? Because he just never wrote. But at times... Paul would say, I'm gonna write this with my own hand. Give me the pen, because he's that fired up. That's what he's saying. And then here's how he ends his letter, Galatians 6, 12. 
may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Paul's all in on Jesus. He's centering on Jesus, and this will be key to answering our question, how do we come together in a world coming apart? All right, thanks for your patience there. That's important to understand what Stuart read. So we come into this, it's called the Jerusalem Council. Paul's so fed up, because this group says, we're from James. James is the brother of Jesus, who was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus lived. Imagine if you had a brother who claimed to be God. I mean, how would that go? (laughs) Not well. (laughs) Well, when Jesus rose again, James became a follower of Jesus. Of course he did, which I think is a powerful apologetic to the resurrection. So because of his blood connection, I would think James quickly rocketed up the hierarchy of the Jews. And this is still a ragtag group, a couple thousand people. This is not a big movement yet. But the epicenter of it, the leadership was still in Jerusalem. All the apostles, the elders, James kind of led it all. And this group said they were sent from James. Paul was like, no way. I just don't believe that. I know James. I spent time with no way. And he goes, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's just go right to it. Let's just, let's just figure this out once and for all. So off they go. The Judaizers, Paul, Barnabas, they all head to Jerusalem. They're welcome. This is the passage Stuart just read to us. They're welcome in their midst. And then uh, this group of uh, Christian Pharisees, that's exactly what they are. That might throw you for a curve. If you're used to reading the Gospels, the Pharisees are like the enemy, right? They're like, oh. And for one, I don't think that's fair or right. I think Jesus was a Pharisee, but that's for another day. The Pharisees were faithful. They knew God's word. They practiced God's word. They were so close, which is why I think Jesus was so hard on them. And we know after the resurrection, many of them became followers of Jesus. And that's some of this crew. They would consider themselves Pharisees, so would Paul. Paul would not have dropped that label. He he was proud of it. He's like, I'm a Pharisee that understands Jesus is king and the Messiah. So Paul probably grew up with these people. He knew them, which makes us all that much more intense. So this group gets up and they're like, yes, Jesus, he's king, he's Messiah, but we think they also should do boom, 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 circumcision and a couple other things. Thank you for hearing us. They sit down. So then... Peter gets up because Peter was shook by Paul, and to Peter's credit, he wasn't defensive, he was teachable, he was humble, he had learned. And so Peter gets up, and he champions Paul's side. He's like, no, they're wrong, <laughs> and Paul is right. And then Peter has this great line, Acts 15, 11, which is, I think is one of the clearest articulations of the gospel in all of Scripture. Here's what Peter said, we believe It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And hear this today. If you hear nothing else, it's not Jesus plus. Jesus did everything that needs to be done to make you and I and all of our brokenness right with God. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing you need to do. There's nothing I need to do. There's nothing you need to do. Jesus has done it all. And Peter says that. And this is the, the heart of the dispute So Peter speaks, he's got a lot of street cred, obviously, and then Paul and Barnabas get back up and they share how the spirit of God is doing miraculous things that authenticates that God is with them. And they're telling stories and it says the whole council is moved. And then James, the leader, gives up and he gives his pronouncement. He says, this is what I think should be. He goes, I don't think we should put any, try to do anything that blocks the Gentiles from coming to the good news of Jesus as king and the gospel, the heart of the gospel. Let's remove all those barriers and then let's encourage them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from meat of strangled animals and from blood. We'll get to that. So then he says, I'm sending out Judas and Silas, two of my representatives, to go 
with these men and I'm gonna give them a letter so that the churches in Galatia will know once and for all what the church thinks, that we're on the same page. Here's what the letter said. And you can read along. We're, we're now, Stuart did not read this. We're into, continuing on in chapter 15. The apostles and elders, your brothers, this is the letter, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is a spirit-prompted thing. Not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. A farewell. So what's, if you're following along, here's what, as I was studying, I was like, well, what's up with that? It seems like they are saying Jesus plus. Are you asking the same question when you read it? it seems like they're saying, well, what are, what are these extra things that they're adding on to then? And here's what most scholars have pretty broad agreement on. James is not adding anything to Jesus. He's saying it's Jesus and Jesus alone that saves. They're giving these as boundaries and protections for the new Gentile believers. It is difficult for me to explain how idolatrous the Gentile culture was in the first century. There were literally on every block temporals to different gods. And it was woven into the very fabric of your social life. You would often go to what's called symposiums, which were dinner parties dedicated to a god, eating meat dedicated to a god, getting drunk, giving praise to this foreign god who was no god at all. And, and, and you would often go to a temple and worship a god by having sex with a prostitute. This was just normal functioning in the first century Gentile world. Now, the Jews had their own issues with idolatry. If you read the Old Testament, we know that. But they're like, we don't want that for our new Gentile brothers and sisters. Because the way of Jesus is the only way. There's no multiple gods. There is one God. And they said, it's all Jesus, and we want you to protect yourselves from falling back into idolatry, which will crush you and dehumanize you and lead you away from life towards death. That's what's going on with these extra things. All right, so how do we come together in a world coming apart? What do we learn from Acts 15? That's our principal question that we're trying to answer and we're trying to carry with us into our lives as followers of Jesus. I first want to acknowledge, uh, I think, a reality that is important to this discussion. And that's the, the, the community of Christ followers, the church in the first century and now is the most radically diverse community in the history of the world. And you can disagree with me, but you'd be wrong. So let me, let me, let me explain it to you. This is what I'm doing my studies in, first, the, the context of first century Christianity. So I know a little bit. I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I know a little bit about this. So here's, I want you to picture, and you can close your eyes if you want to picture this, but I think about this all the time, to be honest. It's beautiful and haunting to me, especially when it gets dark in my soul and I'm wondering if, if it's all worth it. Think of a church gathering in the first century. So think of Colossae or Ephesus or the church at Rome or, or whatever it may be. And these churches, they would meet in homes. So if it was maybe a larger church like the church in Rome, they would meet in several homes. And uh, they would have maybe 30, 40 people max. And here's the provocative thing. 
Uh, the first century world was much like our world. They were very tribal, very stratified. You only hung out with people who looked like you and thought like you that you might have the same job with. They were at your social level, no one else. So we know that. We're in that right now as a world. They were probably even more so that way. And so this is why the early church and the model of it just explodes the mind. So at a typical gathering, picture this, picture a table, these people walking in. Here, and, and I'm not making this up. This is largely agreed upon. Here's who would have been part of a typical church in these cities, men and women. That doesn't blow your mind right now, but if you understand the first century, it should. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, I cannot explain to you the gap between those two. They never hung out. Jews considered Gentiles unclean. Jews and Samaritans were at the same table. If you understand what they thought of Samaritans, that even being the vicinity of a Samaritan would distance you from God. They're sitting at the same table in the first century church. Roman centurions and Roman military officers and Jewish revolutionaries, terrorists, were sitting at the same table in early first century Christian churches. Uh, you would have uh, everyday workers, uh, even uh, you know, menial labor workers coming in after work, sitting down with aristocrats at the same table at a, at a church. I mean, this is like unheard of. You would have Pharisees sitting next to temple prostitutes at the same table in the first century church. You would have slaves sitting next to their slave holders in the first century. Are you following me? This, if it's not blowing your mind, it should. Because they were so centered on King Jesus and so in love with Jesus and so animated with the good news of the coming kingdom that it held them together in a world coming apart, like nothing we've ever seen before. I have frequent conversations with modern believers. They're like, John, it's never been this worse. It's never been this divided. I'm like, you have no idea, <laughs> no idea. And some days is my only hope, to be honest. When I look at it, I'm like, oh, and I read those stats at the beginning, like, oh my goodness. And then I remember the first century church, and I have hope again. Not in hope of humanity, because they were just as broken as we have, but hope if we can recenter our churches on the power of the gospel, then we can begin to come back together in a world that's coming apart. I would also argue that the modern church is the most diverse community in the entire world. Now, not always in our gatherings, not always in our particular churches. We have work to do there, and I'm, I'm hopeful. I think we're doing the work, but we got a long ways to go. I'm talking about the global church. You look across the world, and you see where the church is exploding in the global south and the east. It's the most diverse community on earth right now. It's not even close. I'm in a, a doctoral cohort that, that I referenced, and in my cohort, we've been together for a couple of years. We have, uh, we have a, an Asian woman, we have a white woman from Canada, we have a young black man that grew up in the South that his father was a Cuban immigrant. We have um, a guy who came to Christ and became a follower of Jesus in a Burmese refugee camp. And then we have some old white guys like me. And, and you know, I don't contribute much to the conversation, but can you imagine our provocative, beautiful, hard, complex conversations as we try to work out the gospel? And we love each other deeply. And we're held together by this common bond of Jesus. James Carvo was this chief strategist for Bill Clinton back in 1991. Whenever I give a political illustration, people think I have an agenda. 
There's no agenda, I'm just telling a story, so relax. So he was the chief strategist, and if you remember that, some of you weren't even born then, uh, but Clinton, uh, he kind of surprised everybody by winning the Democratic primary, and then he was going up against George H.W. Uh, Bush, who was an incumbent president. So the odds of him winning the primary and then winning the presidency were very, very slim. No one was giving him a shot. And then if you remember anything about Clinton, uh, you remember he had a few character issues. Can I just say that? So uh, he had very little experience, few character issues. Everybody's like, there's no way he's beating Bush. And then he obviously ended up beating Bush. So the campaign was going very badly. They were way down in the polls. And Carvel, he was a young strategist, but he came in with a game changer. And he put in, in every single Clinton uh, headquarters around the country a sign. And this sign said, it's the economy, stupid. And what he meant by this, he's like, we're not going to win this race on character. That's not going to happen. We're not going to rid it on foreign policy experience. That's not going to happen. Our only shot is the economy is poor. And if we can give a compelling narrative about the economy and just stay on point and centered on that, we're golden. And that won him the election. He was right. And that's essentially what the Jewish council is doing here. And they're centering in on King Jesus to the exclusion of all secondary matters. They're just moving them out of the way and saying it is all about Jesus. And hear this, church. Here's my challenge to us. I think one of the answers to how can we come together in a world coming apart Church, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing for the early followers of Jesus was the gospel. I don't think I put it up in this service. I think I did it the first service last week. But my professor, Scott McKnight, he's a scholar and writer, he, uh, he kind of wrote up what was that gospel? What was Paul's essential message? And he says this, and watch how often Jesus is mentioned. He says, the gospel is Israel's story about how the promise of a future Davidic king is fulfilled in King Jesus as Messiah. Jesus is the content of the gospel. Let me repeat that. Jesus is the content of the gospel. The benefits of the gospel are forgiveness and justification, and these benefits are given only to those who surrender and trusting allegiance to Jesus as Lord and King. We must, church, Keep the main thing, the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. We have to be churches that are centered on King Jesus. My wife is a master potter, and I don't see that as like an adoring husband. I am an adoring husband. She's a master potter. She's incredible. We do a game sometimes where I like, throw a cup, throw a bowl, and she's like, oh, 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 oh. I'm just like, wow, you're a superhero. And so she's just really good. She, she teaches people to throw. She's a great potter. She will tell you this. She's told me this many times. So she's taught so many people to throw pots from students to adults. And she said the hardest thing in learning to throw a pot, that's what it's called when you get on a wheel and you manipulate the clay into something, is centering the clay. How many of you have thrown a pot before? Do you, some of you probably know what I'm talking about. I've watched this happen in classes, and it's really frustrating for people. It annoys me to no end when I'm trying to center the clay, and she gets on and does it in 10 seconds. She's like, whoop, 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 and it's centered. I'm just like, what is going on? And I, I'm an impatient guy, and uh, it's not always great when your wife's trying to teach you something. You married people know that. And so uh, we'll get on the wheel, and she's like, it's not centered. I'm like, it is. It's not centered. It is. It's not centered. It is. And that's how we go. And then I just get frustrated. So this is what it looks like to center clay, and then this is what it looks like when I try to center it. <laughs> and, and I tell her, I'm like, it's centered. I can feel it. She's like, well, just go for it. And then this is what my pots look like when I get done. So... <laughs> 
I think it's a beautiful analogy because I think we're, we're all asking like, what is wrong with the church? Why do we have such, <laughs> to be blunt, deformed disciples? And I think it's our churches are not centered on Jesus. And we, we just say, it's good enough. Or let's center on this side issue or let's center on this secondary or third tier theological issue and let's put that in the center in the place of Jesus and just go for it. Well, when we do that, <laughs> it doesn't go well. Eight years ago when we rewrote our mission statement here, we chose to keep it short and sweet and centered on Jesus for this reason. Uh, Some mission statements, God bless these churches, but it's like four paragraphs. I'm just like, what in the world? And here's our mission statement. Some of you may know it if you come here. We'll see if you know it. Our mission statement is to... Boom. That's it. Follow Jesus and share his love. That's not saying other theological things don't matter. I'm a theologian. I care about those things. We can have coffee and discuss them. I'm not not trying to be naive here. But we want our church here at New Hope to be centered on Jesus and Jesus alone. It's our mission every day. How do we measure whether we're on pew? Well, we follow Jesus and share his love. If that's not enough, then I'll stand before Jesus one day and, and, and take it for the team. I think it's gonna be okay. And I, I like to call churches like New Hope, and I've got friends in the city that, that are trying to do the same thing, which I think is incredibly hard. But for those of you checking us out, you, you need to know this. I refer to churches like us as the churches in the radical center. And I don't think center means compromise. I think uh, in center is costly in this day and age. Because we live in a world where we have a, a, a fundamentalist right and a fundamentalist left. They're kind of the same people, to be honest. And they're canceling, and you gotta see it this way, and it's gotta be this, and sadly, that's coming to church world. And you got churches on the fundamentalist right and the fundamentalist left, and we get heat from both of them. And we're just gonna be a church, and it might fail. And I'm just saying that. We're gonna give it a go, that we're gonna be radically centered on Jesus, and we're gonna hold on to Jesus for dear life. I'm telling our team all the time when we get the heat from the sides, and we're trying to be pulled outward, I'm like, hold on to Jesus, (laughs) you know? Hold on to the center. And that's what we're trying to do here. Church is in the radical center. Uh, I, I, I was walking the dogs the other day. Sometimes I get good ideas when I'm walking. I thought of a, philo- uh, a physics illustration for this. So let me try it out for you. If any of you know anything about physics, you can tell me where, where I'm wrong. Uh, but you think of like a merry-go-round. For a lot of us, it's been a long time since we were on a merry-go-round. But I'm sure you've been on one before. And we always, when I was a kid, liked to get them going really, really fast. You had that kid that would just run it on the outside and then jump on. And like when, you, when it's going really, really fast and you're in the center, it's easy. There's no force, whatever that's called in the physics world. You're just free. You're just spinning. And you can even hold your hands up. You don't even need to hold on. But if it's going really fast and you work your way out to the edge, I think this is right. It's called centrifugal force. Tell me if I'm wrong later. Don't, don't bank on that. It pulls you outward. The further out you get, the more force you're getting to pull you out. And that's when you do it, and there's kids that always do that, you lose them, right? Joey goes flying off. Joey! And they Susie! They're just flying off. And then we're like, why is the church coming apart? Why are we fracturing? Why are people flying off at the edges of that? We're not staying centered. And when we try to make the center the outer edges, it doesn't work. We will fracture inevitably. And this, again, going back to the pottery illustration, the same thing's true. Say you tried to center your clay on the outer edges and throw something, you'll last like three seconds. The clay will just boom. It'll shoot off the edge. 
The only thing you can make something beautiful and good and true and useful is having it centered. Uh, throughout history, I try to think of some, some ways in which the church has moved the center out to other things. Here are some of the ways the church throughout history has fractured and come apart. Uh, debates over whether to sprinkle or dunk during baptism. Come on. <laughs> when Jesus might be coming back, does God choose us or do we choose God? Both is the answer. Um, is the earth young or old? Are we team donkey or team elephant? Hymns or no hymns? Mask or no mask? Vaccine, conspiracy theories, on and on. Is Bigfoot real? No, I added that one. I, just... I think when Jesus sees his church trying to center on these things, <laughs> he probably gives us a big eye roll. Or that's probably not true. It probably breaks his heart. And it, it probably causes him to weep. And he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> like, I did it all for you. I did it. You're supposed to be together, not arguing over these things. What does it look like to be a church that's coming together in a world coming apart? We center on Jesus. I've been memorizing uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And uh, it says, therefore, since you have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us, let us uh, walk with perseverance the race that is set out before us. And then how do we do that? And the writer of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on who? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's how we do it. Author Philip Yancey had this great illustration Someone gave him the world's largest dictionary. I guess it had every word that's ever been a word in the English language. And it was one volume. So with so many words, it had really, really microscopic print. And it came with a magnifying glass. And so you had to read it with a magnifying glass. And he said what he quickly realized is that um, when he's moving the magnifying glass and trying to read, the word in the very center of the magnifying glass is crystal clear. And all the other words around the edges are what? Blurry. And he said, the central problem in the church is we're taking the magnifying glass off of Jesus and moving it onto other things, which essentially makes Jesus blurry. Jesus is the one thing that can't be blurry. My uh, professor Scott and his daughter Laura a couple of years ago wrote a book called, A Church Called Tove, and it kind of blew up, became a bestseller, kind of like what's wrong with the church and really calling the church back to being a church of goodness and beauty and truth. It was a hard read. Uh, it was a needed read. And so he's just beginning, he's just gonna be publishing his, his sequel to that called Pivot. How do we become churches like that? So he sent me a copy uh, before, it was, before it's being published and um, I was reading it the other night. It's really fantastic. And I came upon this point near the end. He says, uh, he and Laura say, the first, last, and most important evaluation question is this. How central is Jesus his life, his teachings, his death, his glory to your church and institution. Is he often talked about? Is he the presence in every room and conversation and program? In other words, how Christ-like is your church? Maybe we ought to have signs printed up for our church saying, it's Jesus, stupid. <laughs> you know, in all my years, I've had so many lunches with people checking out our church, and I always do that. It's part of my job. I love it. 
Um, but I was thinking about this the other day. Usually folks come with their long list of theological boundary lines or questions they wanna know what I think about, and that's fine. I'm happy to have those conversations. I don't think once, I could, be, I could be forgetting someone, but I don't think once in all my 25 years of pastoring I ever had somebody come in and say, what do you think about Jesus? Are you guys, are you guys in love with Jesus? Am I gonna hear about Jesus a lot? And those are the questions we have to start using as our boundary lines. So before we come to the table, kind of one last point here. And this will probably be the hardest for all of us because to this point, I think a lot of us probably, yeah, yeah, Jesus, sign me up. Here's, here's the idea. This idea of unity is all over scripture. Jesus in one of his last addresses in John 17 says, they will know you're my church and they will know of my love and the Father's love and the Spirit's love if you will be unified. That's how they'll know. How's that going, church? <laughs> and so here's the deal. Here, here's, I think community, and think of that word community. The word community has unity in it. Unity requires self-sacrifice. How are we gonna be uh, coming together in a world coming apart? We're gonna be centered on Jesus, and we have to sacrifice our lesser differences for the good of greater unity. That's where the cost is, followers of Jesus. This is you. To this point, you're excited about that principle of unity if other people are sacrificing what they care about. <laughs> How about you? What does that look like? What are you gonna give up? What are you gonna decenter and put Jesus back in here and say, and here, Paul lived this out. I think the way that Luke puts together Acts is brilliant. And we don't have time to read this passage, but read it this week. Literally the very next passage in Luke so you can even, if you're in 15, you can just turn to 16, will blow your mind. And this is why it'll blow your mind. Paul takes young Timothy, who eventually became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He's a young disciple, takes him on a road trip to train him and teach him, goes back up into the Galatian churches where he just argued it was Jesus alone. And he turns to Timothy, who is a Gentile, and says, Timothy, to be effective and fruitful on this mission, I'm gonna need you, can you see it coming? I'm gonna need you to be circumcised. What? Is Paul a hypocrite? No. Paul cared so much about the gospel and King Jesus that he wasn't gonna let the immaturity of the people he was trying to reach get in the way. It's like, Timothy, it's not a big deal. Just get circumcised. Easy for Paul to say. <laughs> but he's like, trust me, like, he's not telling Timothy to get circumcised for Timothy, but for the good of others for the good of the gospel. Later, Paul goes in the temple and does all the purification of the temple. He didn't need to as a follower of Jesus. He did it because of the people he was trying to reach with the gospel. He knew they were immature. He knew they were divisive. Later in the Corinthians letter, he says, I'll become all things to all people. Just tell me who it is you're trying to reach. I'll sacrifice. I'm not gonna do anything unethical. I'm not gonna distort the gospel, but I'm trying to get a pathway to the gospel. Tell me what I need to do. Can you imagine if that was our mentality, Christians? Were you led with what can I give up? What can I give up for the greater good of the glory of God and the sake of the world? How we would set the world on fire? That's why I think the church missionally is at the epicenter of how do we answer that question? How do we come together in the world coming apart? The church can lead the way. As the most radically diverse community in the world, we can show people how it's done because we have something so big and beautiful and good and true to hold us together, Jesus, our King. We can say it's possible. It's possible. But I think so many people and so many Christians, they don't really want unity. 
They want unanimity and they want uniformity. They wanna go to a place where people look like them, think like them, vote like them, live like them, because it's safe and easy. And I'm telling you here at New Hope, we're not settling for that. We're not. Because if you go to a church like that, that's not a healthy church. And we're not preparing you for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Like, that's my job. That's our job. One day, one day very soon, we will all be in the presence of God. And we will be with all of those who are in the kingdom of God through the grace of our God, through the work of Jesus Christ. And we don't know very much about that, but we're told we'll be at a feast where Jesus is the head of the table. And odds are, hear this, you're gonna be sitting next to someone that doesn't look like you, think like you, act like you. The average Christian in the world today is from the global south, and it's a woman, and she's got black or brown skin, and she's about 30, and she's poor. How much do we have in common with that person? Some of you may have some in common, but most of us, not much. You better get ready, or it's gonna be some awkward dinner conversation at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're trying to prep you, and I'm convinced that if we can be that diverse, beautiful body of Christ, where Revelation 7 times says people from every language, nation, people, they're gonna be gathered together around King Jesus. How cool is that? That's where the world, that's how we illustrate to people what it's looked like to come together in a world coming apart. I wanna prep us for the table here, but I wanna give you a couple questions. We're told to kind of reflect. We did this a little last week, and we're told before we come to the Lord's table that we're to come in a reflective way, not in a haphazard way, not in a way that hasn't like pondered what I've just challenged you with. And here are the questions I want you to think about. I'll give you just 30 seconds just to ponder them, carry them with you into your day. And the questions are this, is my faith centered on Jesus or something else? Be real, don't lie to yourself. Is my faith centered on Jesus or something else? Maybe that's a really easy question, but maybe here's the more provocative one. What am I willing to set aside for the sake of unity? Oh boy, are we gonna be serious about this? What are we willing to set aside for the sake of unity so that we can be a church truly centered on the King of kings and the Lord of lords so people who are lost without him will know him and be found again? What are we willing to sacrifice, church? Take, take a minute just to pray over that and think about that before we come to the table.